hope you had a chance to be here last week as uh, Pastor Doug brought us to Exodus 19, and, and we met God. Remember last week, standing at the, the base of the mountain and, and, and feeling the, the presence of God, the ground shaking beneath our feet, and, and hearing that, that horn, that, that trumpet blast, that, that voice of God. How awesome was that last week? Well, keep that in your back of your mind as, as we'll be going through this this morning, Exodus chapter 32. And last week, the Israelites, they saw God. They, they had an incredible encounter with this amazing God who came down the mountain in the form of this cloud. And they saw, they encountered God. But left to themselves, they got in trouble. So this morning, as, as we're sitting here and thinking what is God like? Have you ever thought about that? It's a simple question, but, but what is God like? If you close your eyes and you just, you picture God, what do you see? What is God like? What's your perspective of God? Is, is God like a, a loving grandpa? You know, and God is just all about sitting in his big rocker in the, in the sky, and all he just wants to do is just love his children. You know, God just, he wants to spoil us and just give to us, and God just wants us to be happy. God just wants to, to love us. There's no discipline. God just wants to watch us play and, and be happy. Or maybe God's more like a policeman, and, and God's just out to get us, and, and he's just there to, to beat us over the head whenever we do something wrong. And he's got this huge list of, of laws and demands and expectations, and, and we've got to be so careful that, that we don't upset God and we don't break one of his rules. God's this, a policeman out to get us. He's, he's there to pounce on us when we mess up. Or is God more like a, a royal butler? You know, God's just there to serve us. God's just there to, to make us happy and, and healthy and, and wealthy would be nice. You know, God is just there to, to lavish us with, with blessings and gifts and prosperity and, and stuff. What is God like? All we've got to do is, is believe in Jesus and ring the little bell of prayer and, and make our wish list known to God and, and God's going to serve us. What, what's God like? Maybe God's like that, that, uh, that school bully. You remember him, the kid a little bit bigger than you? The, the school bully in elementary who, who grabs you, puts you in the headlock, who, who out for recess shoots rocks at you with a slingshot, who, who steals your glasses, steals your lunch money. Just, he just picks on you. Is God that, that mean bully that you remember in elementary school, the one who just picks on you? What's God like? Or maybe God is, is retired. You know, God, he created and, and he was here, uh, but he, he's long gone. That was, that was a long time ago. God's created. He's, he's left. He's on vacation. He's, he's living it up in his, his uh, Hawaii, uh, his hula shirt and living on the beach. Maybe God's just, he's gone. He's absent, distant, removed. He's, he's uninvolved. He doesn't care. Or maybe he is a she. Uh-oh. Maybe God is, is a mother earth and it's just about peace and, and balance and, and let's just tolerate one another. Let's just coexist. Why, why can't we just all get along? Let's just be friends, right? Is that what God wants? Is this what God is like? Well, I think with a room this big, I think with, with this many people, I think there's going to be some different views of God in here. You know, naturally, we, we have a, a gift of imagination. We have different backgrounds. We have a, a different way of thinking through, of, of processing and understanding things. So I think we'll have a little bit of a difference of God. 
But what is God like? Is God like this? Is, is he a, just a loving grandpa, this policeman, bully, butler? What is God like? Is he just retired? These are wrong views of God. We can be clear on, on what God is like, and, and we can know who God is because God has revealed himself. Just like last week when, when God revealed himself to the Israelites at, at Mount Sinai, God showed himself, and they viewed God. We're going to learn they, they viewed God wrongly. Uh, they resorted back to their days of Egypt, and, and they weren't on track with, with who God is. So for us, as we, as we gather together, as we look at Scripture, we've got to have a proper perspective of who God is. It's not based on our background. It's not based on, on how we think, or it's not based on what we think God should be like. God has revealed himself, and we can be clear. We can know who he is. So this morning, we're going to be learning about who God is. We're going to be going through a proper perspective of God, Exodus chapter 32. What is God like? I hope this passage, hope this chapter can teach us a little something more about God. Exodus 32, starting verse 1. When the people saw that Moses was so long in coming down the mountain, they gathered around Aaron and said, come. Make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses, who who brought us up out of Egypt, we don't know what's happened to him. So here the Israelites, they're they're not a patient bunch of people. They're here camped out at the base of Mount Sinai, and, and they're missing Moses. He's been gone. He's actually been gone for 40 days. Ever since chapter 19 and 20, Moses has been up on the top of Mount Sinai, meeting with God, receiving God's laws, and so here are the people, they, they don't know where Moses is. Where's Moses at? He, he's, he's gone. This fellow, he, he left us. And, and we don't know where Moses is. But we do know we're tired of the desert. We want to get out of the stinking camp. We want to get to the promised land. All right, let's think. Let's put our heads together. What can we do? Well, Moses isn't here, but we know we need, we need Moses' help because he helped us in the past. But, uh, but he's not here. We don't know what happened to Moses. Ultimately, it was, it was God that helped Moses. So forget this fellow Moses. Let's, let's just go straight to God. Let's just go straight to the big man. Let's go to God and, and, and let's actually, let's just make a God. And, and let's make a God. And this God could be the one that, that goes before us. So Israelites are thinking. They're brainstorming. They've got an idea. Let's, let's make a God and this God can go before us. Verse 2, and Aaron answered them, take off your gold earrings that your wives, your sons, your daughters are wearing and bring them to me. So all the people took off their earrings and brought them to Aaron. He took what they handed him and made it into an idol, cast in the shape of a calf, fashioning it with a tool. And then he said, these are your God, O Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. Is this insane or what? I mean, just 40 days ago, these people met God. Their feet shook as they encountered the presence of an all-powerful, almighty God. They saw God. Remember back in Egypt, the plagues? They, they saw God. God revealed himself. They walked across the dry ground of, a, of the Red Sea as a bunch of slaves. They defeated the Amalekites in battle. And, and now, after coming throughout all of those things, after all of those ways, God has showed himself. They, they make this cow, and they credit this cow as the one who brought him out of Egypt. It's just like, what are you thinking? This is just insane, right? 
Let's keep going. Verse 5. When Aaron saw this, saw the idol, he, uh, he built an altar in front of the calf and announced, Tomorrow there will be a festival to the Lord. So the next day the people rose early and sacrificed burnt offerings and presented fellowship offerings. Afterward they sat down to eat and drink and got up to indulge in revelry. So not only has Aaron made this golden calf, he's now built an altar in front of the calf. And they've also... Uh, announced there's going to be sacrifices and, and a festival. Two sacrifices are, are specifically mentioned. Uh, verse 6, burnt offerings. Now, these sacrifices would be made for the, the atonement of sin. They would offer these sacrifices to, to have God cover, to atone, to, uh, to take care of their, their sin. And then they also had fellowship offerings. And these offerings were made to keep, to, to maintain this, this ongoing covenantal relationship with Yahweh. So here these people are, are offering sacrifices to, to cover their sins. And they're offering sacrifices to keep their relationship with God. But they're offering them to this idol. Well, it's not just that, but also Aaron announced the festival. This festival is the same word as the Passover. Here they're celebrating the Passover festival. They're offering sacrifices on the altar. It's so clear. These people are worshiping. They're worshiping. But the question is, who are they worshiping? You know, have the, have the Israelites just given up on God uh, had they just completely given up on Yahweh, and now they're, they're creating this, this cow cult religion? They're, uh, they're making this gods of gold, this golden calf? Or are the Israelites still trying to worship Yahweh? Who are they worshiping? And why are they worshiping? You know, what's their motivation for, for worship? Why offer these sacrifices? Why have an altar? Why give up your gold earrings for an idol? You know, what do you have to gain by, by having this golden calf? Why worship? And who are we worshiping? Two huge questions to this text. Hopefully we can answer them. First, who are they worshiping? Look at verse 5. After uh, building the, the altar, Aaron announced, verse 5, tomorrow there will be a festival to the Lord. They're worshiping the Lord. They're worshiping God. This golden calf, it's, it's not a new God that, that replaces Yahweh. It's a, it's a God that they created to represent Yahweh. The golden calf is, is not getting rid of Yahweh. It's, it's trying to represent and see and touch and have a physical Yahweh. See, what's going on here is, is an idol, is this golden calf, it, it represents, it's, it's the physical presence of, of God. And, and just as Moses used to be the, the physical presence of God, well, Moses is gone, so now they need something to replace Moses. Well, let's replace Moses and let's create this idol to represent God. And this God can go before us. This God is the one that can go before us, just like Moses went before us out of Egypt, so let's offer these sacrifices. Let's have a festival. Let's, let's build an altar for this God and let's worship God. Let's worship the Lord. But God is not a cow. Everybody agree? So why would they have made the image of God represented as a cow? Well, back in Egypt, calves, young calves, were uh, a symbol of, of strength and power. 
And so it just makes sense. These Israelites, they've, they've seen a strong and powerful God. I mean, they, they were there for the, the plagues. They were walked across God, separating the walls of the Red Sea. They, they believe in a strong and powerful God. Obviously, their experience of what they've come out of tells them God is strong. Last week, they stood at Sinai, and they felt a strong God. They believe in a strong, mighty, powerful God, so they represented him in what they knew. Well, just as calves in Egypt represented a strong God, so does this one, the golden calf. Back in Egypt, idols were, were very common. Have a, a little idol here. It's a tribal idol from, from Africa. And back in uh, Egypt, idols were, were very common. Most houses would, would have a, an idol for itself. And uh, the, the thought was... Um, you know, these, these idols of, of stone, these idols of, of stick or wood like this one, or idols even of, of gold, the, the belief was that, that this idol, this idol right here, it represents God. It's a tangible, physical, we, we can see it, we can touch it, it represents God. But also the belief was the gods are angry. The gods are, are angry, and, and it's our responsibility. This is the thought back in Egypt. It's our responsibility to appease the gods, to, to make the gods happy. We don't want the gods to be angry, because if the gods are mad at us, something bad might happen to us. And so the thought was, I want to make this, this idol happy, because if I make this idol happy, God will see, and the God this idol represents will be happy. And if that God is happy, I'll be happy. So the thought was, during meals, the uh, people would, would leave food near their idol. They would leave food so that the idol could eat, the idol would be full, the, ap- the idol would be happy, God would be happy. They would take the idols out for walks, they would take the idols for, for a, a breath of for fresh air. They would even take the idols out and leave it outside so that it could properly go to the bathroom. It's crazy, but that was the thought. If I take care of this God, just as I would take care of a, a child, if I take care of this idol, God will see. And if I take care of this idol and make this idol happy, if I do these things for this idol, the idol will be happy. And if the idol's happy, God will be happy. And then if God is happy, if he's not angry, if God is happy, oh, he's going to protect me and He's going he's gonna to prosper me, and, and he's going to make me happy. At the heart behind idol worship is this attempt to control God. If you do these things, you do this stuff for God, then the idol that the God represents, if you do these things, God will see, and God will be happy. In the same way, the Israelites, they're, they built an altar. They're, they're offering sacrifices. They're, they're bowing down and worshiping this idol. They're doing these religious things. They're having the Passover festival. They're, they're doing this stuff for God. They're trying to worship God. But why are they worshiping? What's their motivation? They're trying to control God. They're trying to, to manipulate, and, and they're trying to make God happy because they know if God's happy, then they, as a tribe, as a, as a bunch of nomads, men and women, children, livestock, traveling through this open desert, they know that eventually... God will show up and he'll take them to the promised land. They want to get out of the desert, but they know they need God's help. They can't do this on their own. They need God to show up. They need God to take them. So what's the best way for God to show up and save the day and help them? Well, let's make a God and let's make a God and let's make that God happy. Trying to control God through, through idol worship. 
for these Israelites, all that God has done, he has taken them out of Egypt, but Egypt is still in the hearts of these people. They're still remembering these strong calves that, that they grew up with. They're still remembering these, these idols in their home. They're still remembering and thinking back how easy it was to try to control these gods, how easy that was. And, and now we've seen a big God. Let's try to control him. These, uh, these Israelites, they've, they've got the wrong perspective of God. Obviously, these, these idols are, are sticks and stones. Uh, but the thought was, if I take care of this idol, God will take care of me. They want God to be their own kind of uh, personal genie in a bottle. You know, you just gotta, you just kind of gotta rub the lamp and, and poof, God will show up and, and he'll save the day. You just gotta do this stuff for the idol. You just gotta, gotta worship it. You just gotta bow down. You have to have sacrifices and, and an altar and a Passover and, and poof. We do these things, God will show up and save the day. Not quite. What do you think? Uh, they succeed? Did they appease God? Did they make God happy? No, verse uh, 7 through 10, God burns with anger. Verse 7, then the Lord said to Moses, go down because your people whom you brought out of Egypt have become corrupt. They have been quick to turn away from what I've commanded them and have made themselves an idol, cast in the shape of a calf, They have bowed down to it and sacrificed to it and said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. I have seen these people, the Lord said to Moses. They're a stiff-necked people. Verse 10, now leave me alone so my anger may burn against them, that I may destroy them, and then I will make you into a great nation. Wow, seems a little harsh, doesn't it? I mean, the Israelites messed up big time, but, but now God is, is threatening to, to destroy these people. Why is God so upset? Two things. God first specifically told the Israelites, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery, and you shall not make for yourself an idol. You shall not bow down to them or worship them. Here's the reason, for I, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God. This is the second commandment. The second commandment stating, you shall not make for yourself an idol. You shall not bow down to this idol. God is a jealous God. And so making this this golden calf and making this idol and attempting to to control God and making this this idol, the Israelites are are actively rebelling against God's commands. They're, they're rebelling against what God has told them in the Ten Commandments. So big deal. You know, Israel, they, they broke one of the big commandments, right? They broke one of the, the ten. Uh, isn't God still overreacting a little bit? Well, the second reason God is, is so upset and is burning with anger is, is look at what God has done with these people. Look at what God has brought these people out of. They were the slaves of Pharaoh, and God has redeemed them. He has redeemed them at a price and is bringing them out of Egypt to become his own special people, his treasured possession. God has come alongside these people, and, and everything that he's doing is he's, he's shifting their thinking. They're going from this polytheistic world where it's all about making gods happy and he's taking them into a monotheistic relationship, one God relationship 
where it's not about making God happy, it's about learning how to live in a right relationship with God. That's what the Ten Commandments are. That is the, the, the purpose of, of all that God is doing with these people, is teaching them and instructing them how to live. And so what do they do? Now knowing that, they throw it all away. And they resort back to their days of controlling God through idol worship. That's a lot easier to control this God and leave a little bit of food crumbs near him than, than try to live in a right relationship with a holy God. So all that these people have done is they're, they're just not only rebelling against God's commands, they're completely rejecting God. So God responds to these people as well. Verse 10 uh, God says to Moses, now leave me alone so my anger may burn against them. Verse 10, God tells Moses to leave him alone, but we're gonna see Moses does not leave him alone. Actually, Moses stays. He gives three reasons, three appeals why God should spare the Israelites. Uh, verse 11, Moses sought the favor of, favor of the Lord his God. Oh Lord, he said, reason number one, why should your anger burn against your people whom you brought out of Egypt with great power and a mighty hand? Reason number two, why should the Egyptians say it was with evil intent he brought them out to kill them in the mountains and to wipe them off the face of the earth? Turn, turn from your fierce anger, relent, and do not bring disaster upon your people. Verse 13, third reason, Remember your servants, Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, to whom you swore by your own self, I will make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky, and I will give your descendants all this land I promised them, and it will be their inheritance forever. Verse 14, then the Lord relented and did not bring on the people the disaster that he had threatened Just quick summary, what's going on here? Israel has rebelled and rejected God, and so God burned with anger and, and threatened to destroy these people. But as the mediator between God and, uh, and, and Israel, Moses shows up, and Moses shows up and he appeals to God. He gives three reasons why God should spare these Israelites. He appeals to God's faithfulness. He appeals to God's covenants, God's promises, so is, is Moses the hero because God relented from destroying these people and God spared them? Is Moses the hero? What's going on here? Was Moses somehow able to, to convince or persuade or, or win over God? I think we've got to be very careful with this text. This, this passage is not about how to pray to God. It's, it's not about how to, to make an appeal or, or try to argue or, or try to win over God to our side because we've got to see in making the golden calf, the Israelites are attempting to control God. So if we give Moses the one, if we give him the credit of, of winning over God and, and saving and sparing the Israelites in some way, that's saying Moses has... Even if it's a small bit, Moses has some kind of a control over God. And we've got to see God is not a God who wants to be controlled or manipulated. I think what's going on here is the focus, it's, it's really not so much on Moses. And, and we're going to see this later on. I think uh, it really doesn't have to do that much with Moses. He was a small part, but I think something so much bigger is going on here. 
something so much more redemptive, something, something based on the very nature of what God is like. See, from the, the human perspective, from Moses' perspective and from our perspective, what do we see? We see the Israelites worshiping this idol and God burning with anger and then threatening to destroy these people. But then Moses appeals to God and God relents and does not destroy these people. So there's an obvious turning point here where, where it seems like Moses is the one who steps in, who spares Israel. But from the divine perspective, from God's perspective, God not only knew the, the present situation and that the Israelites were worshiping this idol, God also knew the future situation, and God knew, we're going to learn in verses 27 and 28, that all of the three, all but 3,000 of these people were destroyed. I said that wrong. Only 3,000 of these people were destroyed. Everybody else was spared. So from the divine perspective, God sees these people, they deserve judgment, they deserve punishment, they deserve, they deserve destruction, but... Something's going to happen. We're going to see it later on. Something's going to happen. And so God spares these people. But 3,000 of them, they were not spared. They were killed. So I think what's going on here is, is there's this, this condition, this condition of repentance. We're going to see it a little, little bit later on. But this word relent, it's an interesting word. Whenever this word relent is used, it, it is in some kind of a context of, of people who repent to God. Remember Jonah, the prophet Jonah who goes to Nineveh, who uh, preaches a message of gloom and doom and repentance to the, to the Ninevites? What happens? The Ninevites, the people, they respond to God and they repent. And so then God relents. He does not destroy them. He spares them. In the book of Jeremiah, the same word relent is used. And here Jeremiah is, is telling the people, uh, repent Return back to God because if you do, if you return back to God, if you uh, come back to God, he is going to relent from destroying you and he's going to spare you. Here, what we see going on, and we'll see it a little bit clearer later on, is, uh, is this all-knowing God sees these Israelites are worshiping an idol, but he also knows the future situation and he knows that these people are gonna come back to him. They're gonna repent. They're gonna return to God. And so on the condition of their repentance and their returning to God, God relents. He changes his course of action. Instead of destroying these people, God extends grace and mercy and compassion. Even though they don't deserve it, they deserve destruction, God extends his grace. I got to keep going. Uh, verse 15, Moses turned and went down the mountain with, two tablets of with the two tablets of testimony in his hands, and they were inscribed on both sides, front and back. The tablets were the work of God. The writing was the writing of God engraved on the tablets. When Joshua heard the noise, so we, we can assume that Joshua was with Moses, probably somewhere up halfway on the mountain. When Joshua heard the noise of the people shouting, he said to Moses, there is sound of war in the camp. Moses replied, it's not the sound of victory. It's not the sound of defeat. It's the sound of singing that I hear. And when Moses approached the camp, he saw the calf and the dancing, and, and his anger burned, and he threw the tablet out of his hand, breaking them into pieces at the foot of the mountain. This isn't a, this isn't a, a picture of a, 
a lost, con losing control, just angry, ticked off Moses, who comes back down the mountain and just destroys the Ten Commandments. But rather, it's, it's Moses coming back down the, the, the mountain and the people, Israel, seeing their leader returning and their people coming up to the base of the mountain and approaching him. And the, and the symbolic of Israel breaking the Ten Commandments, symbolic of Israel breaking the, their covenantal relationship with the Lord, Moses takes the two stone tablets, throws them down, and symbolically breaks the Ten Commandments, just as Israel had broken the Second Commandments and their covenant with God. This is just amazing. These are the most valuable possession, the, the, the writing of God, his hand coming down and engraving with human words, these 10 commandments, and Moses breaks them. You know, we make a big deal of getting a Peyton Manning's autograph with a, a Sharpie on a napkin. This is the ultimate revelation of God. This is the signature of God but that shows how severe the sin of Israel was if Moses broke the most valuable possession in the world, showing the severity of Israel's sins. God is, is, uh, is serious about sin. I think Moses understood that. Keep going, verse, uh, verse 20. And he, Moses, took the calf they had made and burned it in the fire and ground it to powder, scattered it in the water and made the Israelites drink it. I like that. He made the Israelites drink it. Here God is, is uh, or Moses is saying, don't use this defiled gold which you offered to an idol to be the same gold that, that you later used to build the, temp, the, the tabernacle or the Ark of the Covenants. This gold that has been defiled, that is impure, unclean, this, this idol gold have nothing to do with it. It's of no value Drink it. It is, it is just as waste. There's nothing worth this, this gold. Keep going. Verse 22. He said to Aaron, what did these people do to you that you led them into such great sin? Don't be angry, my Lord, Aaron answered. You know how prone these people are to evil. They said to me, make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses who brought us up out of Egypt, we don't even know what's happened to him. So I told them, whoever has any gold, take it, uh, take it off. And then they gave me the gold, and I threw it into the fire, and, and out came this calf. Yeah, magically out came this calf, right? Aaron, don't you remember asking for the, the earrings and then melting them down and then fashioning with a tool this idol? Aaron, don't you remember building the altar or announcing the sacrifices, announcing the festival? Aaron, are, are, you, are you really that innocent do you really have nothing to do with what's going on with the, the sin of the people? It, it's amazing that God does not hold grudges against people. Lying, deceiving, idol-making Aaron, the high priest of Israel. Out came this calf. Yeah, sure it did. Verse 25, Moses saw that the people were running wild and that Aaron had let them get out of control and so become a laughing stock to their enemies. And so he stood at the entrance to the camp and said, whoever's for the Lord, come to me. And all the Levites rallied to him. Way to go, Levites. Verse 27, then he said, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel says. Each man strap a sword to his side, go back and forth through the camp from one end to the other, each killing his brother, his friend, and his neighbor. 
Is this just kind of a, a bunch of Levites just running around, just randomly killing just brothers or friends or, or neighbors, just randomly killing people? Or is it something else? I think it's something else. All of these people, there's about two million of them, all of them, as we learned earlier, they deserved to be destroyed. They were bowing down and worshiping this idol, and God is a jealous God, and therefore they deserve God's wrath. They deserve to be destroyed. But we read in verse 28, the Levites did as Moses commanded, and that day 3,000 of the people died. So why 3,000? Why not 2 million? Why didn't God kill all of them if they were all guilty, if they all deserved destruction? God relented. God spared some. Some were destroyed. What's going on here? Well, I think the Levites got it. It says uh, they strapped a sword to their side. I think the Levites, systematically approaching, they approached everyone, a brother, a friend, a neighbor, they approached everyone with this question. Do you intend to return to the Lord? Are you going to repent of your sin and return back to Yahweh, keeping his covenant, keeping his commands? Or are you going to continue to worship and control and manipulate and worship God as the golden calf. Here's a question. Are, are you going to return to God, the God who's revealed himself, who showed up, or are you going to, just like back in Egypt, worship these gods? I think these Israelites, they were posed with this question, and the Levites were the ones carrying out this order of the Lord on the condition of repentance. If the people repented and returned to the Lord, God relented. God foreknew, he saw this repentance of these people. And therefore, these people, these two million people who were part of God's treasured possession, his redemptive plan of history, he didn't have to destroy them because he knew these nearly two million people would return, repent to him. They were spared from the sword. God, they deserved God's wrath. They deserved God's judgment. They deserved God's destruction but they were given what they did not deserve. They were given grace and mercy. They were spared from the sword. But these 3,000, these 3,000 who did not return to the Lord, I don't think it's just a random 3,000 that were killed, but it's a 3,000 who committed themselves to idol worship, 3,000 who had a completely wrong view of God, who wanted God to be their own little genie in the bottle. And so what happened to those 3,000? just as God had threatened, they were destroyed. They were struck down by the, the Levites. They were killed with the sword. Oh, it's just an amazing picture of, of hope in this passage where, where God, he is a just and God is a jealous God, where God will not allow sin to go unpunished where there are consequences for sin, there is wrath, there is destruction, but... There's also a choice. There's a choice in returning back to the Lord and repenting and the forgiveness of sins. There's an amazing choice. The Levites are the ones carrying out the, the orders of God. I just think this is so amazing to see this hope, the hope that, that we too can return to the Lord. Yeah, we deserve wrath. We deserve destruction. But on the condition of our repentance, if we repent and return back to God, 
it's gonna give us so much, something so much greater, something of, of grace and mercy, of compassion. Then Moses said in verse 29, you have been set apart, you have been holy to the Lord today, for you were against your own sons and brothers, and he has blessed you this day. They approached everyone. They approached their friends, their neighbors, their brothers, even their sons. The Levites approached their sons, not on the condition of their repentance. God relented. They were spared. Verse 30, the next day Moses said to the people, you have committed a great sin, but now I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. So Moses went back to the Lord and said, oh, what a great sin these people have committed. They have made themselves gods of gold, but now please forgive their sin. But if not, then blot me out of the book you have written. Moses knew the, the severity of the sin of idol worship that that's a big deal. And Moses knew the sin has to be forgiven. So Moses approaches God and says, Mo, God, take me instead. I know you need to forgive these people, but if you're not willing to forgive them, then at least take me, take my life instead. This book of life that, that Moses is talking about, it's, it's not the same book of life we see in Revelation of, of eternal security. It's, it's not the same book. Moses is not offering to, to spend eternity separated from God and condemned in hell. This book of life that, that Moses is talking about, it's, it's similar to the books that, that the ancient cities in, in Egypt would have kept with the, the populations and with the records. And so if you, move, if you lived in the city, your name was in that city's book of life. But if you moved or if you died or you went away from that city, your name was blotted out. So here, Moses is saying, take my life instead, blot me out, kill me on the condition that you will forgive them for their sins. I'm going to see uh, God's response. Verse 33, the Lord replied to Moses, whoever has sinned against me, I will blot out of my book. Each person is accountable before God. Each person's own sin and guilt it's right before God. So the Lord rejects Moses' offer. Moses has a good idea. He's, he's got great theology, uh, but he's the wrong substitute. He's the wrong sacrifice. Moses is not the Savior. He's not Jesus Christ who came as a perfect substitutionary atonement who can forgive us of our sins. Keep going. Verse 34, now go, lead the people to the place I spoke of and my angel will go before you. However, when the time comes for me to punish, I will punish them for their sin. And the Lord struck the people with a plague because what they had did with a calf Aaron had made. Sin has consequences. The 3,000 who, who did not repent, the 3,000 who did not return to the Lord, the 3,000 idol worshipers who, who wanted to continue to control God, destroyed, struck down with a sword. The other two million... Even though they repented, they were still struck with a plague. God has got to, because he is a just and holy God, God has got to, by his very nature, deal with sinners. But there's amazing hope in that God can deal with sinners who respond to him and not only execute divine wrath, God can also extend grace and mercy and compassion 
So from this chapter 32, we, we really see uh, two views of God. We, we see uh, the, the Aaron and the Israelites who, who attempt to, to create a God, to, to make this God happy, so that in return, if this God's happy, they'll be happy. They'll get out of the desert into the promised land. We see this wrong view of God where they're trying to manipulate and control and, and have God show up and save the day. And all they have to do is this stuff. Just, re, just worship. Just do these religious things. Have a Passover festival. Have these sacrifices. Do this stuff, and God will spare you wrong view of God. These Levites had a right view of God. They, they understood God's nature where God is, is not only a God who's just and jealous, but God is also a God who's, who's compassionate and forgiving and kind and gracious and, and merciful and abounding in love. And so on the condition of repentance where each person has a choice, will they worship a false God or will they worship the one true living God? Each person has a choice. Each person is held accountable before God. So what does this text uh, show us for today? What does it mean for us today? You know, I, I don't think it's, it's about uh, examining ourselves and seeing what are the shiny little objects in our life that we worship. I think it's something so much bigger than that. I think this text is so much more about having a, a right view of God, having a proper perspective of who God is. I don't think we've, we've ever made an, an idol uh, carved out of wood. I don't think we've ever made an idol with our hands. But it's easy to make an idol with our minds. What I mean with that is, is you know, if God is just a loving God, because we want God to be all about love, and, and if he's just this loving grandpa who, who just wants to love us and there is no discipline, he just wants to spoil us, there's a problem with that. Because what about, what about all the evil in the world? Does God turn a blind eye to this evil? Does he allow evil to go unpunished? Or if, if God is this, this royal butler who's, who's all about serving me, man, life is great when I'm, I'm healthy and wealthy and happy, but what about when I'm experiencing trials or pain or suffering? What's my view of God now? If God's just this mean school bully, well, how do you explain all the good in the world? Why is there beauty in creation? If God's retired, if he's on vacation, this is it. I mean, there's no hope. There's no meaning. There's no, there's no purpose, no point to life. If God is Mother Earth, and it's all about coexisting, and let's just be friends, well, what about the, the various religions that have competing truth claims? They can't all be right. These aren't views of the right God. These are our man-centered, manipulated. These are our self-views of God, of what we think God should be like. But what we think God should be like is not necessarily right. We've seen that with the Israelites and, and with the, the controlling God of the idol. We've got to have a right perspective of God. And this, this right perspective of God, it comes from Scripture. We sing about a God who is holy and awesome, a God who is loving and powerful. And, and we use these words and, and we sing about a God but our theology of God is not, a ba is not based on, on what we sing. It comes from Scripture. We've got to have the right Scripture, the right view of God for, for who we see God to really be. And we can't just cling to, to half of God. We can't just run to God's grace and forgiveness and, and just be so blinded by his compassion and his mercy. And, and we can't just be all about God's love and, and that's it. We've got to fully embrace all of God. Yeah, God is that. And that's awesome 
And we need that. And so thankful. Even though we don't deserve it, God blesses us with this. But God is also just and jealous and does not allow sin to go unpunished. The great hope in all this is that we have a choice. We have a choice to, to return to God. We have a, a choice to, to really repent because there will be a judgment day. And so we can stand before a holy God who's awesome and powerful, all sovereign, all knowing, and God can point to a day in our life where we repented of our sin, where we returned to him and God spared us, did not destroy us, did not give us wrath, but gave us grace and forgiveness and compassion. There is that day, but there's also the day for the unrepentant, the day when, when God will judge the land, where there will be the punishment and destruction of guilt and sin. You know, just like these Levites, we, we've got to have a right view of God. We've got to realize that, that we have a choice, that we can repent and return and come back to God. So this morning, sitting there, I think there's a lot of different views of God, and, and hopefully this morning we've been able to get kind of on the same page of, of seeing there's this, there's this dual nature of God where he is loving and he is, he is gracious and compassionate, but he's also just and jealous and holy. God's not bipolar. This isn't split personality. This is a balanced, amazing God. And this is our view of God, the, how Scripture presents God to be. So for us this morning... Not only do we have a proper perspective of God, but we also have a choice. And the choice is repentance. The choice is, am I going to turn and follow God with my life? Don't know who you are this morning? Don't know where you're coming from, what you believe? Repent. Come back to God. God does not want to give you wrath and destruction. He wants to save you. He wants all to come to him. Let us pray. God, I just thank you, Lord, for some of us in this room. You've spared us, you've saved us, you've redeemed us by your own blood through your son, Jesus Christ. You have forgiven us of all of our sin. God, you're a holy God, and yet, God, we can come to you and worship you and know you. So, God, I pray we'd have a right perspective of who you are, that we would truly know you as our, our all-sovereign, all-loving God. But God, there's also some who may be here who are, are, uh, are newer to church, who are newer to their scripture, new to the Bible, who, who maybe have walked in with a, a wrong view of God. And I pray there would be a day of repentance in their life, a day that they would return to him. God, you know the hearts of men. You search our souls. So I pray that we would respond to you because we know that you as a, as a just and loving God respond favorably to those who respond to you. Love you, God. Amazing God. Amen. Let's stand together.